there exists something deep within you that was placed there by the only God of this universe. It is a gifting that stirs a calling and it is dangerous and the way that fire is dangerous and it is good and the way that fire is good. And given our cultural climate, it necessarily must be something that is culturally offensive when it is enacted and given the goodness of our God, it necessarily must be something that is of eternal consequence when it is obeyed. This is the gifting that God has placed within your heart. And by this letter from Paul to Timothy, I pray in Jesus' name that the breath of God blows upon the dormant embers and brings them aflame. This is a gifting that stirs a calling. And you may not have ever acted in obedience to it, or may there, there may have been a time in your life when you were walking in obedience to it, and that gifting hasn't gone away. You can feel the heat radiating near your heart. You know that it is there. Has sin and futility piled upon it in thick, damp layers that have nearly extinguished the flame? Have you, for fear's sake, walked in something short of obedience to that calling? Has sin, distraction piled high to the point that you've forgotten exactly who you are and whose you are? Pray in Jesus' name that you would, through radical repentance, come out of whatever anesthesia the enemy has brought you under and that those dormant coals would be breathed upon by the Holy Spirit of God and that you would leave this place set ablaze once more on fire for the kingdom of God and walking in full obedience and nothing short of it to the fullness of everything that God has gifted and called you unto. May we commit holy acts of arson this morning. Paul was writing to Timothy. He wrote the book of 1 Timothy and then years transpired before he writes the book of 2 Timothy. There's something different about this writing. Something different about this book. This is the final writing of Paul as recorded in scripture. He was writing from a prison cell which was nothing new. Paul was a regular jailbird. Like he had this habit of converting his prison guards. Like he was not unfamiliar with the prison system. He had a lot of friends there. But this was different. From some prison cells he would write like the book of Philippians. What's remarkable about the book of Philippians is that there's this theme this, of just ubiquitous joy that runs the length of the book. And Paul is either writing this or dictating it to his amanuensis while he's chained. And it's about joy, indomitable, unshakable, inexplicable joy from beginning to end. And he knew that he would be released, and he was released. Now in 2 Timothy, he knows that he won't be released, and he's not. There is an apologetic in that fact, isn't there? An argument for the veracity of scripture that when Paul predicted he would be released from prison, he was. And when Paul predicted he would not be released from prison, he was not. Take a look at the larger geographic context. Okay, let's look at, look at a map and let's see exactly where this takes place. You might recognize this. This is Earth. <laughs> now, we're zooming in on Italy right at the heart of which is Rome. Paul was in prison here 
If you were to begin near the Piazza de Venezio at the top and work your way down the, uh, this, this upper street, this diagonal street, and then turn right onto this curvilinear road, you would be traveling down a road that was named for the prison that held both Peter and Paul. And then right here, at the very center, is the Mamertine prison. Right here in the very, very middle. This is the Mamertine prison. This is where both Paul and Peter were held. This is where Peter was imprisoned before his execution. This is where Paul was imprisoned. This is where everybody to whom Paul spoke in the book of Acts knew he would eventually end up. When you walk inside, it looks rather unassuming. There's this altar built to Peter. It has an upside down cross in the front of it. It's not because it's an altar for devil worship. It's because Peter was crucified on an upside down cross. And our Catholic friends have made an altar there to the one they refer to now as Saint Peter. There's a hole in the floor emitting a pungent odor. And if you were to lower your lantern down through that hole, you would see probably 30 sets of eyes looking back up at you one of them belonging to Paul the Apostle himself. It was from this prison cell that Paul wrote to beloved Timothy. This was the end of the road for him. It would not be shortly, it would not be long after this that Paul would be taken a few blocks away and have his head mounted to a marble slab. So Paul, with his last words, does not write to one of the churches that he's planted around the Mediterranean or Aegean seas, but he writes to his beloved protege. He writes to Timothy. Here is how this book ends. I will often start with dessert because Christ came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Don't judge me. And so I have a theological justification for starting with dessert. And in that tradition, I wanna show you how this book ends before we read the beginning. Look at 1 Timothy chapter four, beginning in verse six. Let's see how this book ends to set the context for how it begins. I'll share with you the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible's version of the same text. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. Why is that interesting? Because in the book of Acts, Paul and Mark actually parted ways. They broke fellowship for a time, and now in his last letter, what a beautiful testimony of gospel-based reconciliation. Paul is asking for Mark. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. I mean, you've seen the man's prison cell. He's like, maybe bring me the cloak, but definitely bring me the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. 
Okay, watch this theme come up over and over again. He names Alexander, not because he wants now rant and rave and complain about how betrayed he's been, but he is rather warning Timothy about this dude. Watch out for Alexander the, carp, uh, the coppersmith because he did great harm to me. And then look in this, the latter half of verse 14. You can see he doesn't harbor bitterness. Rather, he leaves it up to the Lord to deal with this guy's heart. So the Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed our words. At my first offense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This man is fearless on death row. Greet Prissa, also known as Priscilla, and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Aristutius remained in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come to me before winter. Eubulus greets you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. So there are numerous people who have left Paul. They've, they've turned on Paul. They've left him behind. I've seen this. It's remarkable. It seems like most Ministries end in awkwardness. Paul the Apostle's ministry ended in just awkwardness, everybody turning on him, but he knew that God was faithful. Moreover, there's something built into his words that I wonder if even Paul the Apostle himself caught. Do you remember the calling of Paul back when he went by his Hebrew name Saul? When he was called by Ananias on Straight Street, in Acts chapter nine. It's a real street, it's on Google Maps. <laughs> Ananias walked in, laid his hand on Saul and said, Brother Saul, and told him how he would be God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, tutored by Gamaliel himself, the consummate, authoritative Jew, would be used to minister to the Gentiles. This, this calling on his life to minister to the Gentiles put him in hot water before the Sanhedrin more than one time throughout the events of the book of Acts. And here he re-articulates that same exact calling in verse 17. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. And then, do you hear the ethnic stories behind the names listed at the end? These are not Hebrew names, are they? Look at the, listen to the names, all right? Aquila, Priscilla, Onesiphorus, Aristutius, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. He is praying the Lord would help him minister to Gentiles. And then he has this long list of Gentile names he's giving shout outs to and prayers from and greetings on behalf of at the end of the letter. I wonder if Paul himself even took a minute to take catalog of, you know, I think God kind of did through me what I was hoping he would do and what I was called to do. He's called to be God's chosen instrument to minister to the Gentiles, and his last letter ends with just this parade of Gentile names. I'm struck by that. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul is not the hero of his letters. He does not view himself as the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, and the intent of his writing is to encourage and equip and pour into Timothy and Titus. 
to lift up the ones whom he discipled, the young bucks that he'd taken under his wing. That's all he cares about in his last days. He's pouring into Timothy, pouring into Titus, sitting on death row before his head gets cut off. All he wants to do is exhort Timothy and begging Timothy to come and see him. He doesn't hold bitterness towards the people who have forsaken him. He does not seem to want to write more letters to the other churches. Rather, he is reaching out to Timothy. He's reaching out to Titus. He is the rabid fan in the cheering section. When you played Little League sports, did you have one of those fans, this, this really conspicuously loud fan in the stands? with their face half painted in some weird spear that's on fire and they're cheering for you and you're like, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) This is Paul for Timothy. He is this rabid, wild-eyed, face-painted fan in the stands cheering for Timothy, cheering for Titus, lifting up his young bucks, pouring into his disciples, telling them, fan into flame, the gifting that God has given you. I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. And as we approach this book, some of you will be addressed directly, straight to the heart, from the Holy Spirit speaking to Paul, directly to Timothy, and you might as well be sitting next to Timothy as you read it. And some of you might be more convicted by the context itself. You might be looking over Paul's shoulder as he writes, saying, I need to do this. I need, I need to carry out this same kind of ministry. And in all things, in all things, I pray that we would apply scripture. I pray that if you are skeptical of the gospel, you came here not because you are a Christian yourself, but because, because you have a crush on one of the members of my church. <laughs> and you're, you're trying to impress him or her that you likewise would listen carefully as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart right now. Because you're not exempt from this, my friend. Likewise, you have within you a gifting of God, and it is latent. It has not yet been enacted or fully realized, but there are designs upon your heart woven into the very fabric of your heart, established by the God of the universe Before you were even born, before the ages began, by his grace, he appointed you and gifted you for a ministry. You didn't even know that until today. I pray that you would listen as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart. As you feel radiating from proximity to your heart those coals, those embers that God is breathing upon to set them aflame. That is the Holy Spirit of God awakening within you the spiritual gifts that that are there. This is what Paul is calling forth in Timothy as he writes to him. Let's go to 2 Timothy 1. This is page 995 in the Bibles and the seats with you. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. 
a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Share that with the Mormons who come to your door. (laughs) Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Does that sound familiar? That's how he ended his previous letter, isn't it? Now our curriculum will cover verses three up until this point, and now I wanna see how the chapter ends. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. The opening of this book is deliberate and carries with it strong connotations if we recall the context and the story behind Timothy. We met Timothy in the book of Acts. Timothy's father, whether because he left the family early, was never a part of the family, or because he died unexpectedly, is never mentioned elsewhere in scripture. Timothy is raised by his mother and grandmother, and then, because of his his mixed ethnic origins, is largely rejected by the Jewish men of his hometown. It is in light of this barrier for the gospel that he actually is circumcised as a grown young man in order to remove that barrier and share the gospel with the Jewish men of his own hometown. When Paul arrives on the scene initially to meet Timothy for the very first time, the elders of the church said, you've gotta meet this young buck. You've gotta meet him. Now at that time, I mean, Paul had been through some stuff. Okay, so when we picture Paul, remembering Paul, Paul who would be shipwrecked, okay, Paul who would be beaten, stoned nearly to death, wrongfully imprisoned, have his rights stripped of him numerous times in various contexts, Paul, the apostle, probably bore some scars, okay? There was one point at which they threw stones at Paul until they thought he was dead, and they went inside to eat nachos and watch football. And Paul gets up and goes back into that town. Paul. Imagine for like young, like young teenage Timothy meeting Paul, the apostle. <laughs> it's probably scary. <laughs> And Paul the Apostle is going to lay hands on you. It's kind of scary when you think about like Paul's backstory. <laughs> That's going to be you one day, Timothy. <laughs> I 
That's what it means to be called into ministry. And so there were wounds on Timothy's heart because of this. I mean, having been rejected by the Jewish men of his own hometown because while his mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek, right, not knowing exactly where he fits among the Gentiles or the Jews, there are cultural implications to this, but it cannot be said that Timothy was without a father because Paul adopted him as his son in the faith. Did you see verse two, how he addressed him? Look at it. To Timothy, my beloved child. Remembering the backstory of Timothy, there are cultural implications to that beautiful greeting. Paul is deliberately reaching across ethnic lines to make a disciple of Jesus Christ and pour into Timothy. Highlands Community Church, do likewise. Do likewise. Now, from whence come the tears named in verse four? As I remember your tears, I long to see you. This comes, I believe, from the heavy mantle of faith inherited from his mother and his grandmother and the heavy weight of responsibility that comes with this calling. Paul the apostle himself put hands on Timothy. This is a practice that we emulate when we ordain men as pastors. We draw from the practice described in the pastoral epistles. And so when Paul lays hands on Timothy to anoint him as a pastor, he conveys upon Timothy a weighty mantle. I believe this is why Timothy wept. I believe this is the reason for his tears. Some commentators have argued that it's because of a painful goodbye. I believe there's more than that. I believe that Timothy is feeling the weight of the calling. Would you consider this for the, the context of Ephesus? This church was planted by Paul in conjunction with Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul pastored it for three years. And then a time goes by wherein false teachers, false elders rose up and began giving false teachings. And then Timothy is equipped to step in and take over as the pastor. That means that this church, it's two pastors that we know of, were Paul the apostle followed by Timothy his protege. I mean, that is like the most stacked deck in history. This church was started by Paul. <laughs> it's insane. It's crazy, do you think Paul got letters or emails with the subject line concerned? And then imagine, imagine like somebody contesting his interpretation of his letters. <laughs> you know it happened. And then Timothy, poor Timothy. Okay, in a small way I feel like I can relate to Timothy. Dr. Jim Amandus may not be Paul the Apostle, but he is pretty close. <laughs> no pressure, Timothy. <laughs> This church has been pastored by an anointed man of God. Now, don't mess this up. <laughs> In a small way, I can relate to Timothy. I can relate to Timothy's tears. Because these tears mentioned in verse four bring joy to Paul's heart. I believe that's the origin of the tears in Timothy's eyes and the reason for the joy in Paul's own heart. Did you see verse six, how he's calling him? To fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is the polar opposite of competitiveness, isn't it? The polar opposite of competitiveness. He sees something in Timothy and he's calling it out. Have you seen this before where a mentor will come to resent the mentee? Right, here's the thing, like if you, if you pour into somebody who's younger than you, you train them and you, you see a gifting in them and you call that out, okay, like, if you want to see them succeed, you know, and you pour into them to that end, 
you just might do it. And are you prepared for that? Because there's a strong chance that this mentee, the one that you pour into, could be better at what you do than you. Is your heart ready for that? Because I've seen mentors who were not. You train somebody up and he outshines you and you try to extinguish it. I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen in the church. Okay, Paul, are you ready for this? What if the greatest thing that God does through you comes through Timothy and not you? Is your heart ready for that? May you be like Paul here. Do not, do not, out of covetousness and envy and insecurity, try to outshine your mentee, but praise God all the more when he rises up, when she rises up, when they go on to do greater things than you've ever done. Let it be said that the greatest ministry you've ever done was pouring into somebody who outshines you, and then you praise God when they do. Be like Paul and say, fan that into flame, fan that into flame, fan that into flame. Because the fruit that's born through the ministry of the one that you pour into is indirectly attributed to you. So celebrate all the more when Timothy shines. Paul sees something in Timothy. And I don't know if Timothy saw it himself. Can anybody relate to that? Do you remember when somebody saw something in you that you didn't see? Do you see their faces? I, I, I know of mine. I can think of mine now. I know the people who... When I told them, like, I've accepted a scholarship, I'm going to major in electrical engineering. And they're like, that's cute, Jesse. That's not what God has for you. Do you know those people? Do you remember those? You didn't see it yourself, but they did. Let the Spirit bring their faces to your mind's eye now. The people who saw something in you that you didn't even know. You didn't even see it yourself. And, And while you're at it, Ask God to show you the young bucks in your midst because they have callings too, they have giftings too, and they need a mentor. They have something in them. It's just an ember right now. It's just a glowing coal right now. They don't see it themselves, but you do. You're like, oh man, if God were to breathe upon that and bring that coal to flame, it would be so beautiful. Do you see that? Let God bring to your mind's eye young people in your family your neighborhood, your place of work, here in our next-gen ministry. That's very much what our next-gen ministry team does. They start little fires that will grow to blazes in Jesus' name, amen? Do you see that? This young buck. All right, right, it's hard to see because it's covered in like acne and awkwardness. All right, but it's there. It's there, and you see it, okay? Is, is the Lord laying a face on your heart right now? of a Timothy who has no idea how gifted he is. She has no idea what God's gonna do through her, but you do, you see a glimpse of it. You are obligated before God to bring those coals to flame. What Paul did for Timothy, you do for the people that you disciple. They're young bucks and they don't see it yet, but you see, you see something in them, you tell them this. Listen, I see something in you and it's beautiful. And you can't see it yet, but I do. Fan that into flame. Fan that into flame. Look, there's something in you, something written on your heart, and you don't see it. You have no idea. You have no idea what God's gonna do through you, but I I can see a glimpse of it. And I want you to fan that into flame. This is what Paul is doing for young Timothy. We're so grateful for those who have done it for us, and we are obligated before God in light of this scripture and the story that brought it about to do the same for others.
may we commit holy acts of arson, fanning into flame the dormant coals in the hearts of those whom we disciple. Now, what, why is verse 7 here? Okay, why, why fear? Why does a message about fear follow a message about this gifting being fanned into flame? Why is that, why is that included? It, it seems like a non sequitur until you consider that it's a scary thing to live out obedience to your calling. It's a scary thing to, it's a scary thing to walk in full obedience to your gifting. I mean, what happens? Everybody says all these great things about you, and it turns out they're all wrong, and you're delusional about yourself. And what happens if you do step out there, and you try to teach this message, and then you just get shot down, and it doesn't work, it doesn't bear fruit? That's a scary thing. What Paul is pointing out is that God does not give us that spirit of fear, that terror, that insecurity. Right? Terror is not of God. Terror is demonic. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love. And then how many of you, like me, can hear a sound mind in the third? Anybody else hear that one? All right, my mom had her King James Bible, and that's what she would say to me. All right, Jesse, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. Now get back on the horse. All right, when I faced fear, this is the verse that my mom would use to encourage me, but she quoted it in the King James. Power, love, and self-control. A sound mind, the King James. Sound judgment renders the Christian Standard Bible. A strong mind renders it the NIV. All of these are accurate translations of the same Greek word that appears uni uniquely here. This power, this love, this strong mind, this is worth exposition. Let's talk about power. If you look at the word power, you could misconstrue this and turn it into self-confidence. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a strong mind. Who is the source of the power in this verse? It's God. God is the one who gives us that spirit. It does not come from within. So if you apply this verse in terms of self-confidence, you miss it. It comes from God. Your confidence is not in yourself, your own intellect, your own powers of persuasion, your own charisma and personality and giftings. It is from God. He is the source of the power. So he gets 100% of the glory for the fruit that's born through your ministry when you enact this gifting. When it's fanned into flame and others draw near to its warmth, you don't get any credit. It all goes to God. So do not misconstrue this verse into some sort of weird pagan, secular, humanistic, self-actualization motivator. It's not about your self-confidence. It's about God's power. You have convinced, you are convinced that God is able, and as a result, you will not be swayed. This power is not from us, it's from God. Because we're fragile. We are fragile vessels. And we may be pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. It's because of God. And we, we may face trials and tribulations and difficulties. We may be struck down, but we're not distorted. And it's because of God. It's inexplicable the results that God would bear through such, such finite vessels, such incredible eternal fruit. God is the one who has the power here. And so we, we don't have a, a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. Now, love. Listen to what 1 John 4 reads about love. We're going to go verse by verse through 1 John and 2 John and 3 John with the high schoolers this summer. Three entire books of the Bible, entire verse by verse studies. Now granted, two of those books are only a page long, but still. 
Beloved, let us not, uh, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love. And then the third Self-control, a strong mind. Sophronismo is the Greek word here. And it speaks to one whose mind is made up, whose, whose very worldview comes from the word of God and whose salvation comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ and is therefore irrevocable and unassailable. You stand upon the word of God and so you know where matter came from. You know where life came from. You know where morality comes from. And you know where we're all going. And as a result, you will not be shaken. You will not be moved. You have a sound mind, self-control, solid judgment. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a strong mind. Instead of being fearful, you have self-control. Instead of being fearful, you have a sound mind. Instead of being overwhelmed with heart palpitations at the mere thought of what is before you, you remember who your God is and you face it with an accurate lens upon reality. Power, love, a strong mind. Now the word, the term be not ashamed in verse eight could speak directly to some of us in this room right now. Do not be ashamed. There was a time when in October and November, the politicians would start appearing in churches, and though they were tone deaf, singing in the choirs. Okay, why is this? Because it was, it was culturally and politically advantageous to be associated with Christianity. Now, in this cultural climate, to be seen in a church could actually hurt your campaign, especially in King County. Why is that? Why is that? Rather, I, I propose that we are unashamed of Christianity. Be not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed. Imagine comparing testimonies with Paul one day in heaven. Paul, who had his rights stripped of him and was stoned nearly to death and, and publicly executed for his faith, and you stand next to him. I once named Jesus on Facebook and somebody replied with the angry face emoji. I know. Persecution, Paul. <laughs> We're all gonna meet Paul one day, so let's not embarrass ourselves, okay? <laughs> Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of his word because it's the only hope that our friends in the Pacific Northwest have for salvation. There's no other God who's gonna save them. It is only through Jesus Christ. So do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, Christian. Do you see in verse nine the eternal scope of this calling upon both Paul and Timothy alike? This, this, was, this has its roots before the ages began. 
Jesse, I don't know, if I, if I live this thing out, if I start, if I, if, I, if I really do let God fan this thing into flame, I, I know what you're talking about. I sense the heat from the coals. They've been there my whole entire life. I know that I've had some abilities that are beyond me and they were placed there by God for an eternal purpose, but I'm a little freaked out at the idea of God breathing upon them, bringing them to light and stepping forward in obedience to all of these things because I don't, I, I, what, if, what if I do and nobody comes to be saved? I don't, I don't know if anybody's gonna ever hear Christ Christ through my testimony. I don't know if anybody's ever going to give his or her life to Jesus because I step forward in obedience to the Great Commission and use my gifts to serve in the church. Look, you can't say that because you don't know. All right, how, how petty of you to take. Listen, to, according to verse 9, this was spoken by God of this universe before the ages even began. Okay, it is way beyond your ability to guesstimate whether or not it's going to be fruitful. This is beyond our scope of understanding. It has nothing to do with anything that you've done. See that in verse, in verse nine, not because of your works, but only because of God's purpose and God's grace. All right, this, this he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I love verse nine's abolition of death. Did you see that? Strong wording. Jesus who abolished death. All right, Adam may have introduced death, but Jesus abolished it. And the wording, the wording just soars. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It was not just life, not, not just life, but life and immortality. It's not just life, but eternal life. And not just life, but the abolition of death and the institution of spiritual eternal life. It's not just life in this physical realm, but life that lasts forever and transcends even mortality itself. That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, your life then transcends beyond even the grave. This is the scope of the gospel. Now, in verses 11 and 12, we see more evidence of this radically different tone in 2 Timothy. Very different from the rest of, of Paul's letters. And then verse 13 gives us this picture of this incredible, incredible integrity. I love this. What you've seen in me, you put into practice. It's, it's Paul telling, telling, telling Timothy, look, it goes like this. Do what I do, okay? When I do ministry, you're right there with me, okay? Do what I do, do what I do. That's a, that's a discipleship model. That's a discipleship model. There are guys that I've discipled over the years that I didn't know quite how to connect with them, so I just said, just come with me. I'll go speak at the conference, he's there. Afterwards, we go get lunch and talk about how terrible it was. Discipleship. <laughs> All right, when, when you do ministry, they're right there with you, serving alongside you. Come with me. What you've seen in me, you put into practice. This means that Timothy was there watching Paul minister. And now Paul is saying, you remember that? Do that. That's discipleship. If you're not good with words, if it's difficult for you to describe how things are done, just bring Timothy with you. Bring Timothy alongside you. Now, in the last verses, we see in verse 15, Phygelus and Hermogenes get, get called out. Okay? They get called out because they turned away from Paul. But again, I mean, Paul's not bitter. The very next verse, he says, may the Lord grant mercy, and he's praying for Onesiphorus. I mean, he immediately turns to Onesiphorus, and then he spends the next three verses thanking God for the refreshing ministry of Onesiphorus. Now, I may be grasping at something small, but you tell me if, you tell me if, if this is, if we're actually onto something here. He spends one verse addressing the abandonment He's faced through two brothers in Christ, Phygelus and Hermogenes, 
But then he spends three verses thanking God for the refreshing ministry of Onesiphorus. So he, he literally devotes more than triple the time and words to thanking God for the encouragement that he does to complaining about having been abandoned. Am I grasping at something small or do you think this is deliberate? May we likewise. Don't, don't waste time harboring a grudge and bitterness. Spend triple that time thanking God for the people who encourage you. This text may have spoken directly to you right where you're at. And if you've been, if you've been lost for a while, if you've been stuck in sin, if the futility is just piled high in damp layers of ash, I believe God will breathe upon the embers within and set them aflame once more. And that your faith would be like a lighthouse amidst the darkness that those in the Pacific Northwest seeking truth would see it in you and say, that, that person believes the gospel and has been saved. I need that same gospel. Breathe, breath of God, upon the embers in our hearts. Set them aflame once more. If you've been asleep for a while, if you've been stuck in addiction, and the enemy's been putting you to sleep, instead of living out full obedience to the calling that God has placed deep within your heart, would you invite the Holy Spirit of God? You're the one who placed these embers here. These coals bear your brand. Breath of God, blow upon them and set them aflame once more, that you might become who you were designed to be. And if you're struck, by this example, you look over Paul's shoulder as he writes to Timothy and it brings a tear to your eye because you're like, I need to do this. I need to carry this mantle. I need to carry this, this tradition of ministry forward. Would you ask God to place upon your heart your own Timothy, that you would speak into him what you see in him. You would speak into her what you see in her and call it forth. Call it forth. Ask God to breathe upon it and bring it aflame once more. And my skeptical friend, I haven't forgotten about you. If you likewise, through the stirring of this scripture, see a similar design upon your own heart, know that you are intended for something eternal. And you may have been living in disobedience to God until this day, but right here and now, that drawing upon your heart, that is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And he knows you better than you know yourself. He sees something within you that you cannot possibly see now. There are spiritual gifts within you for eternal purposes within the church of God. You were designed by him with a loving intent. Your existence is not arbitrary. It's not accidental. It's not inexplicable. It's a story of grace grace and love that was authored before the ages began. You are a recipient of an eternal grace that cost God his son. It will cost you your sin, but today God is breathing upon the embers to set them into a white hot blaze. Do you feel the breath of God blowing upon your heart? My formerly skeptical, but now divinely insecure friend, this is the day of salvation for you. This is the day you become who you actually are. This is the day you inherit your adoption as a child of God. Let the embers burst forth in flame and may God ignite dormant hearts that we may together set ablaze revival in the entire Pacific Northwest beginning right here in this room. Shall we start a fire, Highlands Community Church? Woo! Praise God. 
If that is you, if God is drawing upon your heart to be saved, if God is convicting you to once again step into obedience to the calling that he's given you, would you ask God to breathe upon the coals of your heart to set them aflame once more? And if God is calling you to get off your tail and disciple Timothy and call forth what you see in him, what you see in her, then would you obey, obey Highlands Community Church. Give your life to Jesus Christ as the Spirit draws upon you right here and now. Let us pray, God, start a fire now. I believe in you, God. I feel right now the very Spirit of the living God breathing upon the dormant coals of my heart. And it is beyond my capacity to control. It is beyond the ability of my sin to extinguish. It is a power of ancient. It is a power of old. It is the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, sending fire from heaven to set me ablaze, just as he did the early church at Pentecost. Holy Spirit of God, I believe that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. I feel the coals beginning to spark. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, would you blow upon these embers? I confess that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Here comes the fire. I confess that Jesus is Lord. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the life. I believe that Jesus is the truth. And I know there's no way, God, I can come to you except through Jesus. Let the fire rage, God. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. The fire is waking up and it's all for your glory. Let my life be a burning beacon, a brilliant testimony to obliterate the darkness because they need you too, Jesus. Breathe upon my heart. Set me aflame in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Highlands Community Church, would you stand up and worship with us, some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ.